Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 29 of the Best Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. And before we get to this spectacular episode with Leah Penniman, where she talks about a four-year journey, a four-year journey to build a home with her own hands, I have something very important to share with you. And no, today I'm not going to ask you to text me. No, I'm not going to ask you to leave a review. No, I'm not going to ask you to subscribe. Instead, what I'm going to ask you is to take action on your ideas. Right now, there is something that's so important to you that's just gathering dust in a notebook. It's gathering cyber dust on a computer hard drive. And my request, my ask of you is to identify what is that first step that you can take today to breathe life into that project. Right now, a lot of people are in funks. Right now, a lot of people are going through some extremely challenging times. And I know firsthand when we breathe life into our ideas, not only do we feel better, but we create momentum on those things that are so important to us. What we have to remember is that our dreams have an expiration date if we don't act on them. I'm going to say that one more time. Our dreams have an expiration date if we don't act on them. So right now, I know you have an idea. It could be big. It could be small. It could be somewhere in between, but it's been on your mind for the longest time. And I ask you to identify what is that one simple step you can take today to make progress on it. Let me know how it goes. I can't wait to hear back from you. But without further ado, let's get to episode 29 of The Best Thing. Welcome to The Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to ever to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Now, this week's guest is someone I first heard on Dr. Mark Hyman's podcast, Pharmacy, And I was blown away by her and her words, and I'm so honored she said yes to join me on The Best Thing. Leah Penniman is a Black Creole educator, farmer paysan, author, and food justice activist from Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York. She co-founded Soul Fire Farm in 2011 with the mission to end racism in the food system and reclaim our ancestral connection to land. As co-executive director, Leah is part of a team that facilitates powerful food sovereignty programs, including farmer training programs for black and brown people, a subsidized farm food distribution program for people living under food apartheid, and domestic and international organizing toward equity in the food system. Leah has been farming since 1996 and teaching since 2002. The work of Leah and Soul Fire Farm has been recognized both nationally and internationally with top fellowships and awards, including the Fulbright Program and the Presidential Award for Science Teaching. Leah is also author of the phenomenal book, Farming While Black, Soul Fire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. 
Leah, welcome to The Best Thing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. And there's a couple of things in your introduction. I just want to get out there so we can educate the listeners, uh, but also continue to educate myself and just some background for the listeners. When I heard Leah's episode on Dr. Hyman's podcast, Pharmacy, which will be linked to in the show notes, I was just blown away because I was being educated. And at the same time, I felt a little bit frustrated and I felt a little bit angry. And truth be told, I felt a whole bunch of ignorant because there was so much that I did not know until I heard this episode. So please listen to that. But Leah, when someone hears the word food apartheid, of course, a lot of folks will think back to South Africa, Nelson Mandela, et cetera. But mm-hmm. what do you mean by uh, food apartheid for the uninitiated? <laughs> well, here's the thing we have to understand to contextualize food apartheid, right? So racism and injustice are built into the DNA of the U.S. food system every step of the way. We're talking about genocidal land theft from First Nations people, the kidnapping of our ancestors from the shores of West Africa for forced labor, convict leasing, migrant guest worker programs, right? Currently, farm management is the whitest profession. Farm labor is the brownest profession. And that also impacts the consumer, which is where food apartheid comes in. Because if you are black or brown, you are more likely to be hungry, more likely to suffer from kidney failure, heart disease, diabetes, and other diet-related illness. And it's not because you don't know how to cook some kale salad, right? Hmm. It's because of a history of discrimination, especially redlining, ghettoization, and underinvestment in our communities, which means if you only have a few dollars in your pocket, you can go to the package store, you can go to the corner store, you can go to McDonald's, but you don't have a nice uh, farmer's market or health food store, right, where you can get these foods that you really need to nourish your body. And the reason we call it apartheid and not what the government terms it, a food desert, is because a desert is a natural phenomena. It is an ecosystem. Apartheid is a human-created system of segregation that relegates certain people to opulence, right, and other people to scarcity. And that's the system we have today. That's a great way to break it down as being a human-created system and that it continues to educate me and I'm sure listeners as well. Of course, right now, I'm going to sound cliche and corny, but, you know, we are living in unique times when so much is going on and a lot of messaging is finally getting told. And it seems like people truly are really hearing right now as it relates to Black Lives Matters, as it relates to really important activism, police reform, you name it. I got to say, Leah, though, as I'm paying attention and I'm, a, I'm an avid news reader and I have a variety of sources that I pay attention to, how much of the activism that's taking place today, I guess I'll say on a national scale, is, is food being talked about enough in that or is, is it even being talked about at all and, and should it be talked about in the midst of everything that's going on? Absolutely. You know, I think that there is a small, mighty and growing movement uh, nationally. It has been going internationally. For folks who haven't heard of Via Campesina, they are an international indigenous led, women led uh, movement that includes millions of people across the globe who are fighting for access to land, clean water, healthy soils, uh, the sanctity and sovereignty of their own seeds, right? And, And to be able to control the means of production. And there are little pockets where that's caught on in the United States as well. Um, I want to shout out the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, for one, uh, the Heal Food Alliance, which brings together labor, environment, and agriculture. And these organizations, just in the past couple of years, have gained enough prominence that we had uh, the Elizabeth Warren campaign. We also had the Bernie Sanders campaign reach out to our organizations to build their platforms on food and race. 
And it was the first time in my 20 year career in this field that a presidential candidate ever even seemed to have that on their radar. So I think things are changing. And a big part of that is that our generation, the, you know, those of us who are in our you know, mid 20s to mid 40s, this generation is the returning generation. We are the people whose grandparents and great grandparents fled the red clays of Georgia to escape that brutal and overt racism and fled to the cities. But our generation is realizing that something was left behind that we want to go pick up. And that's a big piece of our culture and a big piece of our soul. And we're finding our way back to land and our rightful place in agriculture right now. And so it's a very, very exciting time to be in the movement. It is an exciting time. And it's amazing. You just mentioned something was left behind. And researching this, Leah, made me think about and remember some things, frankly, that I forgot about. My, my grandparents, my mother's side, and their family's all from, from Arkansas. And I was talking to my mother leading up to this episode because all of a sudden I remembered for the first time, Leah, about my grandfather uh, farming in his small backyard and growing tomatoes and, and potatoes and onions and different things that we regularly had inside of the house. It made me remember that my, my great uncle, my uncle Freeman, who's still alive and still he has a farm in, in a small town, Michigan, where he raised animals and, and, and fruits, vegetables, you name it. And I completely forgot about this. Um, but I also saw a number that has been referenced um, that says in terms of black farmers that today is less than. 2% of, of farmers are, are black. And back in 1910, I want to say that number was close to 15%. So it sounds like the work you are doing is not only, of course, educating folks on things, but also trying to increase that number of black and brown farmers, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah, back in 1910 or so was the peak of black land ownership at around 16 million acres, as well as the peak of the number of black farmers by percentage at around 14%. And we have lost almost all of that. And mind you, it's not because of choice. Uh, there are three major factors leading to the decline of the black farmer. Um, the number one in terms of acreage lost is actually the federal government itself. The US Department of Agriculture discriminated against black farmers for generations. Uh, so much so that when Pete Daniel wrote his book, Dispossession recently, he named the USDA as the number one cause of the decline of the black farmer. And black farmers sued the government and won uh, the largest civil rights settlement in the history of the United States in 1999, the Pigford case. Uh, but it was really too little too late. You know, all of the plaintiffs were in their 80s and 90s, their land was long gone. Um, the second major thing is that the white caps, the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups were so, you know, upended by the idea that black people were trying to own their own land uh, post reconstruction, that they started burning down people's houses, lynching people, stealing their land, you know, they, there's over 4,000 documented murders and many more that went undocumented. Uh, so there was just this outright uh, campaign of terror that drove people off their land. And then finally, we're dealing with some legal loopholes with something called air property, H-E-I-R, which basically means if you don't leave a will, it's really easy for people to steal your land. And, um, and that's why we are where we, where we are today. But the good news is that with the education we've been doing, the organizing we've been doing for the first time in the last USDA census, we saw the slightest uptick in the number of black farmers. It had been declining for a hundred years and it just leveled out and is starting to climb. And so even though uh, we have quite a beast to slay, I am, I'm hopeful that we're gonna be able to uh, reclaim that heritage. And obviously you and, and your team are playing a major role in that. And before, in a moment, we shift to the question of the best thing, Leah, I mean, of course, you do farmer trainings for black and brown people and, and beyond. But what I'm blown away by, you know, tell me if this number is still accurate. 
sounds like you have over 10,000 people, alumni that have gone through these programs. So I'm sure, I know you, I'm sure personally, you feel like you have a lot more work to do, but still just to hear the number of 10,000, that blows me away. People that have gone through these <laughs> programs and trainings. Thank you for saying that. Yes, we are a training farm. So just for context, we're on 80 acres of Mohican territory in Rensselaer County, New York. So we're a rural working farm that trains black and brown folks to farm. The 10,000 number refers to all the youth and the adults who've come to any program. The people who have completed our more advanced farmer training is probably around 1,000 people, which is still super duper amazing. Um, and I'm very excited for, for all of our many programs. And the most beautiful thing about it is that now we've been We've been here for about 10 years and we have alumni who have started their own farms, gone on to manage, you know, organization, agricultural organizations, have uh, powerful roles impacting policy. And for us, that's the real win. It's not so much that Soul Fire needs to be the be all end all of what black and brown farming is looking like. It's really that we are trying to inspire, equip and empower um, folks to come up with their own localized solutions to food apartheid. Yeah. Okay. And this is, I promise the last question before we get to the best <laughs> thing, but it just, I'm just fired up by all of this and what you do. And I'm just so excited to make a donation to Soul Fire Farm and, and other organizations that we could uh, support. I work in the personal development world and I travel all across the country, working with young people and old people, you name it, primarily on workplace topics. But I'm curious from your perspective, you're, you're, uh, you have two children, uh, you work with a lot of youth and youth programs. What have you found, even from a personal development perspective, the shift in a young person, when I say young, let's say 18 years and under, when they learn about farming and how to do it, that must be a ridiculously empowering experience for them that they can't get from just reading a book or going to a seminar or even going to a college campus. It must instill something truly powerful in them. What have you seen firsthand working with young people? I mean, you nailed it. So I'll tell you a quick story about Dijor Carter. So when he first came to the farm, he was 13 years old. He was not even trying to get out of the van. This child was <laughs> scared a bear was going to eat him. He was scared of the mud. But it was when everybody else went on a tour and he was more afraid of being eaten alone in the van than he was of coming with, right? And so in order to keep his sneakers clean on the walk, he decides to take them off. And we go on the walk, the children are squealing, there's frogs jumping across their feet, there's worm, you know, a whole lot of new sensations and experiences. And we get back to debrief. And Dijon is like, Miss Leah, I know this sounds mad corny, but I'm telling you that when my bare feet touch the earth, my grandmother like her memory came up into me from my feet, like to my heart. And it reminded me of these times when she was still alive and I was a little boy and she would put, um, she would garden with me and put worms in my hand. And, you know, I didn't think I had anything to do with this place. I didn't think I had anything to do with the land, but I'm like remembering that I do, that I do have something to do with this place. And, you know, the children all start, these are some city teens you know they're they're weeping they're talking about their grandmothers and um you know they go on to learn how to farm they go on to pick bouquets of flowers for their mom for mother's day and i think our children are so often given the message that the only value they have as is as consumers or to fit mm. into some cog of a capitalist machine but for them to produce something of value with their own hands and be able to share it in the company of business owners who look like them right it just opens up their sense of what's possible. And that's an absolutely beautiful um, thing to witness. And it's almost universal. We have young people come through and they're like, Miss Leah, can I come back and have my birthday party here? You know, it's like <laughs> more than six flags. Are you sure? They're like, oh yeah, this place is much better than that. 
Listen, I'm not going to front. I, I've done quite a few of interviews in my life. I've done hundreds, if not thousands of interviews in my life. And it's very rarely uh, that I get chills when someone tells a story. And you're talking about Dijon and walking barefoot on that ground and being connected to his grandmother. Holy moly, that that just spoke to me in so many different ways. I appreciate you for for being willing to uh, to share that. And wow, hopefully the listeners are feeling the exact same thing. So So, so thank you for that. So let's shift. I will tell Dijor because I always tell his story and he's very proud every time I do. So I will tell him you said that. That is a magnificent story. And I, oh man, I'm, I'm about to, I'm, 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 I got my, my, some shoes on now. They coming off when I finish this interview. <laughs> I'm about to walk in my yard and I'm about to go forward and making sure the kids take their shoes off too today. Um, yeah, watch out. Uh, uh, yeah, you got me excited. Um, so let's shift to that question about the best thing. I talk to people on this show about the best thing to happen to them that isn't one of those traditional markers of success that doesn't necessarily show up on a resume or a bio or easily come up in conversation at your local coffee shop when you're talking to someone in line. So for you, Leo, what's one of those things that you would say is a best thing to happen to you? Um, again, I wouldn't show up on a resume or a bio that has a, has had a profound effect on, on who you are today. It's such a good question. And, you know, superlatives are hard. So I feel like I have to say the birth of my children, right. Just in case they ever listen to this, but the story <laughs> I want to tell about one of the best things that ever happened to me is actually way back in my mid twenties when my partner Jonah and I decided we were going to start this farm. And, and we, um, we were listening to our neighbors who were suffering from food apartheid. They said, create the farm for the people. And in our naive enthusiasm, we thought we were fancy because we had saved up enough money to buy the lands, but hadn't actually budgeted to build a house or put in electricity or water or a septic system. These very, very basic things. Right. So we're out here with our, our land and, and nothing but some shovels. And so we're like, well, we'll just start building the house. We'll dig the foundation with these here shovels. Now, if you all don't know upstate New York, we're talking rocks, hard pan clay. It's not a cute situation to be trying to dig, but we did. We dug for months and months and months. And we're almost finished with this foundation. When you know, Jonah goes, you know, I know we're trying to build this house uh, passive solar, right? So it needs to face the south. He's like, but I have this nagging thought that maybe the compass doesn't really point south. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And we look it up and true enough, um, a compass points to magnetic north, you know, magnetic, but the solar direction is different. So we'd mm. actually dug this whole foundation 13 degrees off. And if we wanted our house to be a true solar house, we would have to redig the foundation. Wow. So we literally have bloody hands. We are crying in this hole. And I just look over at Jonah and I was like, well, do you want to quit? I mean, this rural life situation is, is a lot. We could just go back to Albany, our apartment. Somebody picks up your trash for you. Someone plows the street for you. And he's like, nah, you want to quit? Never. <laughs> and so we dug it again. And, you know, here we are. That was 2006. Um, it took us four years to finish that house and open the farm in 2010. It's been open now for 10 years. And I think we had no idea in that moment of that decision point where it really felt like the branch in the road that our yes would manifest in getting to live a life so deeply connected to right livelihood, to our destinies, um, to doing the sacred work of heal and repair in the world. Um, we just had no idea. And, and the yes, even coming out of that willful, youthful energy, I don't think I would say yes now, um, is what 
opened the door for all of this to be possible. So that was the best, worst moment of my life. That, that's amazing. It's an amazing story. I love the just 13 degrees off, but it's always that moment when you're like, you know what? Hold on a second. Magnetic North and this, that's it. Wow. Uh, but let me ask you a question. This is interesting because you two, you had the money. You decided to dig this foundation by hand, which took you a long time to do. Can you talk a little bit about the, the how am I going to frame this? The power of naivete, if you will, the power of optimism. And I say that from a really respectful place because over the years, I've interviewed so many amazing entrepreneurs, uh, men and women that are starting a, a ridiculously amazing companies. And one thing they all have in common is that before these companies became ridiculously successful, Leah, they said in the one, to a certain extent, we were delusionally optimistic, probably to a delusional mm-hmm. place. So when I say naivete, the fact that you two still embarked on that, there was something just fertile. Look at me bringing in fertile. And we talking about farming today. Watch out, America. Um, <laughs> but there's something fertile about, again, I'll just say the naivete. I think maybe that's the wrong word, but do you feel what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, that is interesting because um, from your perspective, as someone who's writing books and interviewing, you get to see patterns, right? And so I didn't know that was a pattern. I thought we were a fluke. I mean, we had our children in our early 20s. That wasn't the right thing to do for folks who are college grads, right? Then we go ahead and, you know, blow our all of our little bit of savings on some piece of land on a rocky hilltop. That's not where you're supposed to farm. And then we said we're going to build our own house, even though we'd never built one before. Like, what the heck? And on and on and on. And I feel like everything that we do, for better or worse, we recognize a need that there is in the community, and we just implement. We just start. Um, and we figure it out as we go along. And we are in a funny situation as teachers now because when we advise people, we try to advise them with our hindsight. You know, if we had done this differently, we wouldn't have purchased grade D soils. We would have X, Y, Z. And at the same time, feel free to throw all that caution out the window and just follow your ancestors and follow your dreams because they're going to take care of you and open, open ways that you hadn't imagined were possible. Okay. Just a, a couple questions on that. Um, I have to ask, you know, as, as a married married man uh, with an amazing partner, I'm curious, what does building a foundation with a partner do for a relationship? <laughs> well, so my, my partner, Jonah, um, wonderful person. He's quite a skilled builder. He actually ended up running a building company for a while, and it was to support owner builders. So people like you and your spouse who want to build their own home. And he said, you know, most of my job is actually not design and build. It's marriage counseling Mm. because almost everybody says that to try to build a home together or maybe a corollary would be a business is actually harder than raising a child together. The number of decision points you have to make, I know all the things it brings up about your class differences, your personality differences, but your values and priorities. Uh, there's lots of opportunities for conflict. So I will say that uh, it was not, I'll be real, it was not easy. Um, I was kind of traumatized and didn't do carpentry for about five years after I finished the house. But, but uh, making it through has made us very strong and made us have, um, you know, we have telepathic communication. We have a complete deep knowing of one another after going through all that. I can only imagine just a couple of more questions for you. I'm really loving this conversation and I appreciate all that you're willing uh, to share. There's a, a theme that I see right now, which I'm sure anyone listening can see as well, but I, I'm, I'm hearing as we talked earlier about you and farms. So you're growing your own food. You chose to build your own house. Two things in Western society, I'll say are extremely rare. Have 
Leo, from your perspective, have we lost a sense of ingenuity, if you will, that, that willingness to get down, get our hands dirty, to get those calluses on our hands, if you will, to get our hands oh dirty? Goodness. Have we lost that or do we just need to be reminded? Oh, that is an interesting way to put it. I mean, you've seen that old movie, that kids movie, Wally, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All the people are just in chairs drinking soda and, you know, not really know how, I, I fear for us. Let's just say I fear for us because, um, you know, Mama Fannie Lou Hamer in Blessed Memory, she said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to say or do. Mm. And this was her speaking to a group of civil rights activists who were questioning why she was wasting, quote, wasting her time farming and canning food and raising pigs and all this kind of stuff. And she looked them all in the eye and she's like, as soon as they chain up the grocery store, you will put down your ballot. You will put down your NAACP membership card. You'll put down your petition, right? And you will go begging in the dust for food to feed your children. So if you don't actually have land, if you can't feed yourself, if you you don't have schools that you run in your community and hospitals and these institutions, you are fundamentally dependent on a system that hates you. Mm. And so how are you going to get free? And that's something that I really believe. I think that part of our freedom is certainly participation in a political process and, you know, having the vote and et cetera, et cetera, being CEOs, whatever folks want to do. And also I'm looking very carefully at the fact that 98% of the arable land, that means land that can grow food in this country is white owned. That is a very concerning statistic. And increasingly it's hedge funds that are buying up the land. That means they own the water, they own the minerals. So what future do we actually have as a people without not just the means of production, but actually knowing how to convert that into our sustenance? Um, we, we're all about hard skills. We're all about leveling up, you know, and, and COVID really brought that to light because people, right. And I, and I don't blame them. We asked a lot of questions about the relevancy, you know, why, why small scale agriculture when we can just technify everything and why build your own house when you can make it in a factory. And then as soon as COVID hit and we saw those cracks in the system laid bare, suddenly the line, you know, it was like around around the block. I was like, wait, can you just teach us real quick how to filter our water and grow potatoes and make electricity? Because um, we're realizing that, um, that we're completely dependent on a system that actually is about profit and it's not about people. And that's mm. a scary place to be. Beautiful answer. And yeah, I, I saw the shortages of chickens and chicks that people were trying to buy. It was, it was fascinating <laughs> when, you know, we were naked, the clothes, it, it was, it was fascinating. Um, this is my last question for you. And I think it's, it's going to be a fun one to end on just to see what your perspective on this. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this question, Leah, only because you mentioned it prior to us hitting record, but I think you mentioned it a couple of time and over the course of our interview as well. And a couple of times you've, re you've referenced, uh, and I'll say, quote unquote, follow your ancestors. Mm -hmm. and, and that's talking to me. DeJour felt that, I think, when he walked on that soil uh, that you referenced earlier, the 13-year-old kid who, who put that bare, his bare feet to the ground. For you, when you say follow your ancestors, tell me for that person who may be listening, like, okay, but what does that mean? How, how, can, mm -hmm. I, how can I do that? Ooh, that question has layers like an onion. But I will say the first thing that comes to my mind is just this motif that, that really guides my life. So um, among my ancestors is Miss Susie Boyd. She's my grandma's grandma's grandma. And she, like so many women in the Dahomey region of West Africa, when they were watching people get kidnapped, snatched up in their communities and forced onto ships, 
started an insurance policy and that insurance policy was to braid their seeds into their hair. Okra, mm. cowpea, millet, black rice, agusi, tete, right? They braided it into their hair because they were like, well, if that happens to me, wherever I'm going, the most important thing to have is the seed because that's, that's what I can pass on to my children who, by the way, I believe will exist to inherit the seed. So when I call on my ancestors, I'm often calling on Susie Boyd and thinking about if she had the audacity of hope in that moment of, of sheer terror and unknowing to like save some seeds for me, then like, who the hell am I to give up on my descendants? I better make sure I'm tucking some seeds into my metaphorical braids uh, for them. Um, and for folks who want to get closer to their ancestors, I think it's important to recognize, I would say pretty much any indigenous religion, cer certainly West African indigenous religions, see ancestors as still with us. And so mm. they, you can literally talk to them, they can give you guidance, they bring you dreams and so forth. And um, if folks are interested in learning more about getting close to their ancestors, a good way to start, just put a little bowl of water on a white cloth in some clean place in your house every day, go in front of that get real quiet, say thank you for your life and listen. And you are going to train your inner ear to be able to hear the guidance that's come, that's been around you, but that just has been too much noise for you to be able to take in. That is healing on so many different levels that I won't share uh, right now, but I want to thank you for being willing to, to share that. And I didn't anticipate asking that question. It wasn't on my list of questions prior to beginning this interview, but I'm so glad that's where we ended. Um, Leah, I can't thank you enough for being willing to take time out of your day, your schedule uh, to, to oh, do thank this. thank you for having me. Yes. And for this people. This has been really fun. Thanks for asking real questions and um, just for your light. You have a buoyant energy. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate that. And I like the word buoyant. So I'm feeling pretty fly right now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so for people who want to learn more about you and uh, Soul Fire Farm, uh, where would you like, where should they go visit? Uh, folks can visit soulfirefarm.org uh, to find out how to get involved. And we are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at soulfirefarm, all one word. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much. I can't wait to spread the word about what you're doing. And I can't wait to find my way to uh, upstate New York in the near future to stop by and, and look at that house, that foundation you and your partner <laughs> did and see it in person. Well, we'd love to have you. Thanks so much. You got it. Thanks for listening to The Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.